Yes, humans, you read correctly. The Bizzle did audio commentaries for the Star Wars prequels. I'm going to jump right in because if I got you this far, uh, you've read some of the reasons on my posting why I did it. And I talk a lot about it at the beginning of this movie and during the film. But needless to say, I really had a blast doing these. The original trilogy, everything that needs to be said has been said a million times. This was a new challenge. Um, to challenge to do uh, movies that I don't love, to say the least, uh, is a challenge to you know sit through the entire prequel trilogies um and while i do mock them and make fun of them i try to do so in, in new and original ways and bring some other insights into the few things that you know maybe we can take that are positive from these or at least what lucas was thinking so i use my force powers of film deconstruction or at least try to so i hope you enjoy listening to it as much as i enjoy doing it. Uh, Attack of the Clones is really the most fun because I'm just, you know, constantly floored about how bad it is watching it after all these years. And then Revenge of the Sith is fun because I actually ended up enjoying that film a little bit doing the audio commentary. Not saying I'd watch it a million times, but uh, it ended up exceeding my expectations a little bit, which isn't saying much. But this was the first episode one, Phantom Menace. It was very exciting for all of us um, who grew up with Star Wars. It was a big disappointment, but was fun in the theater. And I'll try and revisit that in initial feeling of sort of, you know, the, the good stuff and then where it went off the rails um, pretty much for the rest of the series, uh, doing a wider analysis of, of what Lucas was trying to do and uh, did not accomplish. So I'll leave you there. We're going to go straight into the countdown. So queue up your digital files to 000. Put on the subtitles, maybe a little ambient sound for the John Williams score, which is one of the only truly great parts of the original trilogy. And I'm going to count us down, and I think you're really going to enjoy this one. I was going to release the original trilogy, but, you know, there's nothing that I, I could say that hasn't been said better um, or a million times before by others. So enjoy The Phantom Menace and stick with me for the second two. I, I think they get better as they go along in terms of my commentaries because it just blows my mind that these products hit the theater. But goddamn, is it fun to make fun of them and, and to, uh, you know, just get back in the Star Wars universe any way possible. And mostly because of excitement towards The Force Awakens. So hope you're queued up. I'm about to do the countdown. When I say play, you should hit play. All right, here we go. Three, two, one, play. Well, <laughs> you probably never thought the Bizzle would do an audio commentary for the Star Wars prequels, but indeed here I am doing it. Because on December 18th of this year, 2015, Episode 7 is coming out, which is the first Star Wars movie in 10 years. And it should be the first great Star Wars movie since Return of the Jedi in 1983. Um, I was so pumped to see this. I was in high school. I think I was a junior or senior when this came out. And even though you could sort of tell in the early trailers that it looked a little too like shiny and not quite in sync with the Star Wars aesthetic, none of us could have imagined how disappointing this all would be. And yet, eternal optimists that we are, we try to look at the few things that they did do well in this movie and say, okay, they just had to get out, you know, the origin story stuff in the first movie about Anakin Skywalker and everything's going to be better in episodes two and three. And while episode three is actually not horrible from beginning to end, two is pretty ridiculously bad. And to say that 
this prequel trilogy was disappointing as uh, the understatement of the millennium. Um, and also, I'm doing this because while I've done like two dozen commentaries and released some of them, they've almost all been movies that I love. Sci-fi, fantasy, comic book, historical, whatever. And I enjoy sort of making fun of the small flaws in those movies. You know, I really get off on just enjoying myself rewatching those movies, doing commentaries. And so this will be a good place to sort of stretch my critical muscles a little bit more. Um, but I'm not going to try and make fun of it, you know, the way most people do and the way I do. And and I'm also going to try to not, you know, just hone in on, on the many, many criticisms that have been made by many, many people. I'm not sure what approach I'll take yet. I haven't watched this in a long, long time. And, uh, you know, this CGI here looks pretty good. So, the first third to half of the, you know, the first prequel, episode one, The Phantom Menace here, uh, has a lot of stuff going for it. But when young Anakin comes into the picture, as we will see, it goes off the rails and never gets anywhere near back to the rails. So, sitting in the theater, we're all dressed up. I shit you not, we're like 17-year-olds. We're dressed up with lightsabers and robes that we made and shit like that. Uh, they wouldn't let lightsabers in theaters anymore, but in 1999, no one gave a fuck. So immediately we see a, a 3PO-type droid. And here we go. These two guys almost single-handedly save this movie. Liam Neeson on the left as Qui-Gon and a young Obi-Wan uh, played by Ewan McGregor who it, it, you know, really tries to hold the, the entire prequel trilogy together. And uh, it's really a credit to Ewan McGregor's acting experience and skill you know, that he was able to come up with something from nothing. So, they really tried to go for a complicated political scenario with a lot of misdirects and red herrings uh, in the prequel trilogy. And on paper, I am actually was okay with that, and I'm still okay with it. And, you know, the lack of execution on the political side is the least of the problems. Or at least it's not one of the major problems, even though it doesn't always add up. You know, in the original Star Wars trilogy... Uh, you know, the politics of the Empire or whatever didn't come in until Empire or fully get developed until Return of the Jedi when the Emperor becomes, you know, a central character. But even then, it was more about Luke and Vader and the political stuff was in the background. Here they push the political stuff to the foreground and as I've talked about in previous commentaries, um, you know, Lucas is a very liberal progressive guy who has concerns about democracy in our world and... It, you know, the prequel to Star Wars, the original trilogy, where the evil empire was already ruling because democracy had failed, you know, this was very important to Lucas. And I'm glad he tried to make that a centerpiece of the prequels. Um, if anything, it helps distract from the, you know, the bad acting and writing of sort of the major characters, including Natalie Portman, who we'll get to. I recently did my Thor podcast and talked a lot about how you know, I've never been a huge fan of, uh, oh, here we go. No, oh, we can actually kill some people. Killing people in Star Wars. We're definitely going to see killing people in Star Wars in uh, Episode 7 with J.J. Abrams directing. 
And so, uh, you know, Natalie and Thor really made me fall in love with her again. And I, I really didn't have a problem with her in the prequels. She didn't do a whole lot great. But for me, you know, I, I never felt like the super fans or super nerds did. Um, and that somehow she ruined the prequel trilogy. I mean, she's not nearly one of the things that were wrong with it. So here we have Jedi's kicking ass, and this was one of the best parts of the trilogy, which was seeing the Jedi strong, many, full control of their powers. You got lightsaber and force powers going right away. This all looks really good to me, to be honest with you. And uh, one of the things that happens with me with audio commentaries is, you know, even movies uh, that I like that I do commentaries for, uh, but have a lot of flaws, you know, like the first Thor movie, but, you know, that movie has so much heart and so much going right for it, I end up liking the movies more, at least while I'm watching and doing the audio commentaries. Now, I also do them on my computer because just the setup of my house, it's too complicated to get the TV going and the computer and the microphone, so minor, you know, CGI issues don't really come through, but so far, you know, th this looks better than 1999, this looks better than I remember, this is great, yep, you know, the the lightsaber just going through, like, inches and inches of solid steel or, or adamantium or whatever advanced metal it is. So this is, you know, one of the first movies ever, if not the first, whoop, that was cool, quick run there, that, uh, you know, had to have actors, you know, interacting with mostly nothing, both in terms of the, you know, characters they're, they're fighting against or, or interacting with, but also the sets. Um, you know, these are all practical sets here. It looks a lot like uh, the Death Star. You know, Lucas didn't forget how to do that. It's when... He, you know, especially in episodes two and three, he realized too much on CGI sets, and that was the thing that really turned me off of Avatar. I knew Avatar wasn't supposed to be real or realistic, or at least natural, but it never felt, you know, tangible. This is already feeling more tangible than, uh, than uh, Avatar. There she is, Natalie Portman. You know, she plays two characters that it misdirects. Uh, <laughs> yeah, her voice is terrible. Doesn't even sound like her. They have her speaking a British accent. That was stupid. Maybe that's just when she's playing Amidala and not the uh, um, Padme, who's her servant, who's really her, and, and that the queen is actually a double of her for security purposes that we learn later. It's a nice touch. And... You know, the character that we know as Padme in this one, who's really the queen, is the version of Natalie Portman that we see throughout the prequel. So, yeah, it's been so long since I've seen these. I'm really interested to see what my reaction is to Natalie Portman. That's very pretty. Naboo. You know, it actually looks better than the inserts that they put into the re-release uh, versions of the original trilogy. Um, that they released, you know, before these came out. Lucas tried to quote-unquote fix things that didn't need fixing. So we saw Palpatine there for a second already, and somehow Palpatine, who looks so old 
in Return of the Jedi in 83, they managed to make look younger, you know, almost 20 years later, in a younger version of himself, but of course the actor himself is older. But he, he almost single-handedly uh, saves at least stretches of the prequels. But I will say, you know, as severely flawed as the prequels were, you know, there's so much romanticizing of the original trilogies. You're like, oh man, in the prequels, you know, all these little side characters can barely act. Yeah, well, if you look at the side characters in the Empire and the Alliance in the original trilogy, they can barely act either. All right, so now we're seeing the forest of Nebu, which will come in later, big time. Um, you know, Endor looked so good. The forest moon of Endor, the Ewok planet, and Return of the Jedi. To tr you know, to try and make a CGI forest. I mean, there's some real stuff going on here. But uh, to try and make a CGI forest, it, it just never really connects. And the lack of connection between the CGI and the practical, from an experience standpoint... You know, it's one of the things that that really derailed the prequel trilogy, and that I think you know, if nothing else, J.J. Abrams is going to have little to no problem, you know, nailing that aspect. <laughs> All right, here's Jar Jar Binks, the first and worst, you know, lead CGI character. I mean, the, the reception to him was so poor after this movie that they basically had to redo or rewrite parts of episodes two and three to minimize him. And it's not just that he has, like, a ridiculous, cartoonish Jamaican accent. It's just so annoying. He's annoying. He doesn't look that real. Um, Liam Neeson does a great job of selling this. I mean, he's the first, you know, if they, let's assume they filmed this in order, which they didn't, and Liam Neeson would be the first ever to have to interact with a character like this. It wasn't until Gollum in 2002 with the two towers that they, you know, the seamlessness of CGI lead characters really began to work. The eye contact's pretty good. Actually, the textures on Jar Jar don't look as bad as I remember. You know, I, I think if, <laughs> if if you uh, put Peter Jackson and the other Lord of the Rings uh, people's feet to the fire about it, they definitely studied Jar Jar. I, I think they would openly admit that they were studying what worked and what didn't work. You know, what what's up with Gollum is, you know... So Gollum is about the size of the hobbits, because he is basically a hobbit, or had been a hobbit. So the eye lines between him and Frodo and Sam were a little easier to do, although he's rarely standing on two feet. He's almost always on all fours, so they were constantly looking down. And then Gollum was dealing with, you know, bigger characters, throwing him around, like Faramir and his men beating the shit out of him in the two towers, torturing him much harder. Right, so Ewan McGregor is now looking above his eyes. Yeah, little things. I mean, you know, his walking's a little herky-jerky. When Gollum briefly sputters in terms of appearance, it's usually just texture or lighting, but the movements are so smooth because they used Andy Serkis. And that was the big thing. It wasn't even the technology was so much better. I mean... You know, the budgets for these movies were significantly higher than the per-movie budget for Lord of the Rings. But 
you know, I don't know if they did some performance capture with Jar Jar, um, but, you know, Andy Serkis acted out every single thing that Gollum did. They put all these sensors on him. He wore big, ridiculous white bodysuit so that they could erase him out and replace him with, with Gollum. But Gollum's movements are always super smooth. So, uh, you know, other than Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor, for most of this movie being the leads, um, helping to sell it with their acting ability and just commitment, the world building going on, you know, we see more just like physical world building in terms of alien civilizations in this movie than the first three combined in the original trilogy. This looks great. Honestly, this looks so much better than I remember. Uh, I definitely rewatched this one the most, no doubt, because, like I said, we were still very optimistic that they would work out the kinks in the first one and, you know, nail the second two, both narratively and CGI-wise. Neither happened. But, uh, yeah, Ewan McGregor's having a little... <laughs> Ewan McGregor's having some problems, you know, looking at the things he's supposed to be looking at. Alright, more Jamaican accent. I don't know if it's it's Creole. I don't really know what they're going for. You know, maybe if they gave the Gungans dreadlocks. You know, they have dreadlocks. Basically, look at the little things off the back of their heads. This guy's great, and, uh, you know, this is a very Star Trek-y thing with the Jedi, you know? They have to make themselves known to these civilizations who may or may not be as advanced as, you know, as the Republic are, as the Jedi are. They have to be culturally sensitive, but they also need to intervene at times. They don't have a prime directive that says they can never intervene. Yeah, yeah light uses of the Force here with the hands. So the Jedi's are very powerful, but they're also immediately cocky and overconfident, and they plant those seats pretty nicely, actually. Um, you know, even Yoda. Um, you know, the, it ends up that the Dark Sith, the Dark Jedi, are growing right under their noses, and they don't see it because they're so confident in their positions. So, in terms of the Star Wars expanded universe, all the books and comic books that came after. The original trilogy and before these, you know, it turns out that none of them are in continuity. Um, and, you know, it, it, Marvel Comics, the books that have come out before and after the movies, are not usually in continuity unless it's specifically, you know, mentioned or intended to be so. But some of the ideas did get carried over. And I think the notion is, and they might talk about this, that the Jedi, the good Jedi, have for the most part been you know, on top of their game for hundreds, if not thousands of years. I think there's an implication that the Sith haven't been kind of public. <laughs> that looks good. The, the, the Sith haven't been sort of publicly known about, even by the Jedi, in maybe like 2,000 years, I believe. Yeah. There was a whole comic book series about it. And now, you know, they're going way the other way so that any official Star Wars books or comic books or kids' books or whatever that are released 
leading up to this new movie and everything following episode seven and leading into the you know next five six seven eight star wars movies however many there are are meant to be in total continuity and it's smart and they can do it in a way marvel can't because you know marvel had been putting out thousands and thousands and thousands of comic books before the movie started getting made and it just can't get rid of all those characters and plot threads you know the wolverine of the x-men movies is similar in many ways but has some distinctive differences from the wolverine in uh in the comic books he's really way darker than the one in the movies as dark as hugh jackman can be at times you can't just get rid of that with star wars it's a single property it's a single extended storyline it looks so far like the books have been sort of mediocre overall with a couple that people seem to be liking I can't read that stuff. I just don't have time. Now, if I really fall in love with the J.J. Abrams movie, which I'd say there's a 50-50 chance that I, you know, fall in absolute love with it, there's a higher chance that I'll I'll really dig it. I mean, I think it's almost 100% that I'm going to dig it. Right? This is the the big animal eating a bigger animal (laughs) eating a bigger animal, which they do. There's always a bigger fish, right? They do this at the Star Trek reboot briefly. This actually looks better, you know, even though this came out 10 years before the Star Trek reboot. So far, CGI looking amazing. You know, these star bases and starships, everything looks great. And so, you know, this will be a running thread about seeing it and the wait then between this and the second. I rewatched this one a lot. I had it on VHS. Um, and there's enough good stuff already and will continue to be enough good stuff to entertain you as a Star Wars fan. You're just desperate for new material. I mean, you know... You can only watch the original trilogy so many times. I probably watched the original trilogy like a hundred times, but you know you need new material. But when the second movie came out and was really just a total bummer of an experience, that's when I got off it. I- I'm not sure I've seen Attack of the Clones more than twice. Episode three was good enough because it was so dark, and we finally got to see some like you know real dark Jedi shit going on and. And the rise of Vader. I, I probably saw that a couple times in the theater, and maybe a couple times after. The second movie is sh- certainly the weakest. Now, if if you look at this as a Disney movie, which it's not Disney when this movie's being made and released, but now Disney owns Star Wars. Jar Jar starts making a little more sense. He's not less annoying, but you know. It's like you build up an impression in your mind of how horrible something is, and then when you actually see it again, you're like, okay, that's that's lame, but you know, not so horrible. Up oh, in even bigger fish, yeah, they go they go all the way with this one. I think there's three. There's big, bigger, and ginormous. Yep, this is them looking at nothing, steering nothing. So, uh, if anything, Liam Neeson looks more comfortable in this movie with the CGI stuff going on than Ewan McGregor, which I think is just because Liam Neeson's a better actor at this point. I mean, Ewan's still fairly young, but by episode two, they just have to lean so hard on Obi-Wan. Great shot of Amidal in the window. Another great shot. Closer up. Looking sad. All right, so here's where the CGI starts going off the rails. Bright daylight. So much harder to do. The droids always look good. They make them look a little dirty. But the long shots of daytime stuff always look way too shiny and a little flat. 
in the water here. So, you know, I'm not going to go on too much, I suppose, with the CGI. It's really already looking way better than I remember it. And, you know, when you see movies now like Thor and Guardians of the Galaxy, which are just so over-the-top colorful that it's almost distracting, it actually makes me appreciate these more. Or at least it, it, it you know, it numbs um, some of my... Um, uh, you know, perceived critique or whatever in my brain. Right, in the Asian accents for the Evil Trade Federation, I mean, yeah, you gotta invent a new accent or just not use accents. It's just offensive, especially when they're bad guys and look horrible and evil and ugly. So, this planet's the perfect planet? Because Palpatine is from this planet, and that's the whole idea. He's the senator, she's the queen. Uh, Natalie Portman, that is, is the queen. And it's, you know, it's very Roman, it's very it's very imperial. But, but it's imperial in sort of the, really the Greek way. The Greeks were concerned with the glorification of of Greece from an aesthetic and philosophical standpoint, but they weren't nearly as obsessed with conquering the rest of the world as the Romans were. That was CGI there. All right, here's another battle. I mean, that's the thing. When you first see this in the theater after so long, you never see, like, multiple good Jedis fighting together. Force powers everywhere. You know, the lightsabers are way more seamless even than Return of the Jedi. The choreography's great. So, I, I enjoyed seeing this. I saw this numerous times in the theater. The negotiations never took place. Right, like that guy, the young black dude. Very good looking guy. You know, I, I remember him being a terrible actor, but after doing the Star Wars um, original trilogy recently, commentaries, you know, he's better than most of those throwaway characters. Definitely should not have had Natalie Portman with a English accent, or they should have just had her make it very mild. Which is funny because, you know, the one criticism of Princess Leia's portrayal in the original Star Wars movie, A New Hope, in 1977, is that in her message to Obi-Wan Kenobi, she's got a pretty weird British accent. But then as soon as we actually meet her on the Death Star, they rescue her, and she kind of rescues herself, uh, she goes straight American accent. I don't know why they tried it again here. The, the roboticness of Queen Amidala is part of the point, because it's not really her. You know, it's her double or whatever. And so that would make sense. If you moat too much, you're going to start giving a lot away. I'll deal with that. They, yeah. They, what's great is they have to go over the top setting up the Jedi's power at this older time in this movie. But they just... <laughs> you know, use every excuse to find creative ways for them to kick ass. But that's what you want, man. I mean, 1989, it's a thing. I mean, no one loved this movie, but it was good enough for a first for the prequel. It was throwing a lot of cool balls in the air. So, right, so you had to have Obi-Wan with the blue lightsaber, as he always has. Uh, you give Qui-Gon the green one, because Luke eventually builds a green lightsaber in Return of the Jedi. Not too many colors you could use. I think we do see purple. I think maybe Samuel L. Jackson has a purple lightsaber. I'm not sure we see orange. 
Um, red is for bad guys, obviously. I guess orange would... Uh, yeah, the red is sort of an orange red. I can't even remember why they care about Jar Jar. There's R2-D2, I, I think. So they preserve... So, like, the pilot there, like, this look, this is from the original movie. Um, was a look for sort of, like, you know, elders in, in, the, in the Rebel Alliance. Yeah, I have to say, man, we are 25 plus minutes in. I'm really not offended by anything. This will be interesting. Maybe I'll end up liking it. I know the second movie I'll be crushing just because of Hayden Christensen. Oh, my God. And I'll certainly be crushing young Anakin here. Right, here are the droids. Suicide mission. They're all getting nailed. You know, they love their droids, but they got to have the droids do it. And RJ's going to... RJ, R2-D2 is going to be the one that survives. Now, R2, unlike Yoda, who they made CGI, and I get why they made Yoda CGI, because they had to have him do so many more things, like fight in this. Yeah, this guy's not an appealing actor. This looks great. Flying along the side, Return of the Jedi stuff. And do they blow it up, or they're just escaping? They're just escaping. Oh, right. I forget they pick up Anakin this early by having to stop at that. Tatooine. Yeah, it does make sense. I mean, Tatooine is a great place to hide. That's the reason they hid Luke there, to keep him away from Vader when he was born. Up oh, the huts. We do see Jabba the Hutt in this movie. CGI Jabba. Doesn't look as good. Yeah, that Trade Federation, like, Starbase looks great. It's not, I don't think, a coincidence that it has a giant ball in the middle like a mini Death Star. I don't know. So, you know, anyone who is anyone who's anyone has watched the original Star Wars movies. At least is familiar with it and the f main characters. So you know that guy's going to be the Emperor who's talking. And, you know... <laughs> If you're even, like, a level two nerd, you know that his name is Palpatine and that the senator is going to become the emperor. So they have to fake pretend for three movies that, you know, <laughs> that's a different guy or something. You know, the, the resemblance in, in looks and voice is a coincidence. Um, but, yeah, to their credit, they don't rub it in your face. It's more about building the credibility within the story, meaning it's more about can we believe that the good guys, you know, these guys, the Jedi and, and the good people of the Republic, the good senators, etc., that they would buy that Senator Palpatine, you know, wasn't this dark Jedi. And that's part of the sort of unfolding mystery. But the mystery is not for us, it's for them. So, you know, I'm not sure they could have done anything else other than just not even bring in Palpatine until much later, or, or at least not his Darth Sidious uh, you know, persona. I do not agree with the Jedi on this. Yeah. I think the thing is, it, it's not that the, it's not that the sort of, uh, extras, you know, it's not so much that the little side characters are, are bad actors, you know, it's that they, they have too much to do.
you can get away with one or two lines. You start trying to make them real characters and not real actors. So here we have Dudley Portman cleaning um, R2-D2. It, it, to finish my thought before, I believe they keep him practical. Like here, I think that's practical R2. They make him CGI at times. Natalie Portman's an interesting actress because she became really well-known, not just well-known, but well-respected and critically acclaimed when she was a kid, and then she did this, and then there was like this huge gap where she wasn't doing anything particularly good, and now she's back in a big way where she's able to do something like Black Swan, an incredibly dark movie directed by Aronofsky that she won an Academy Award for, which is, you know established her her epic credibility uh, you know permanently i guess but she's also able to do thor where she's just funny and lovable and relatable and so in the end everyone's instincts about natalie portman were right this was just a weird little side journey there's no way she could say no to this they must have begged her to do it i would think it is weird to see her this young she looks very different i mean she's got the birthmark of course and she's beautiful but she's still a kid they use the braids. You know, I mean, that's the thing. She's sort of supposed to be the Princess Leia of the prequels, but she's such a passive character most of the time. It's almost the exact opposite of Leia. Not in terms of inner strength, but in terms of outer strength. I mean, she never really gets to call the shots or fight or, you know, order the, the, the guys around. You know, and Thor... That's a problem they're having with her. They had the problem in the second Thor movie, and they might continue to. Of, you know, she's a very strong, brave person. But when you have, you know, like gods all over the place, like what are you gonna have her do? I I don't know who, other than Lucas, thought that Jar Jar was going to be a source of actual comic relief. Um, and, and, you know, and I think that was the problem was by this point, Lucas was so famous and so rich and so in control of everything that no one could say no to him. And he doesn't seem like the kind of personality as egotistical as I'm sure he is. I'm not sure he's the type of personality that just tunes everyone out or gives off an aura of, you know, stay the fuck away. I'm going to do what I want, but maybe he is. It's really one of the only ways to explain it. Here's a young kid. Horrible casting of little kids. I mean, right away is terrible. You know, in terms of epic sci-fi movies, it's a debate, as I mentioned before, whether Anakin or, you know, young adolescent John Connor in Terminator 2 is more annoying. I think it's Anakin. And part of it's just because he's younger. Um, but also just, they, are you an angel? <laughs> He, you know, the thing is, he talks just like one of my little cousins, but it's not even convincing. His facial gestures, but John Connor, you know, is obviously one of the main three characters in Terminator Two, along with Sarah Connor, his mom, and Arnold Schwarzenegger as the good reprogrammed Terminator. But you know, the people who do the fighting and who take up most of the screen time from an action standpoint are his mom and and Arnold. And they have to make him into a great pilot. You know, this is one of the worst explanations or attempts at an explanation ever. 
God, he's so bad. So this is it. This is where the movie starts go- going off the rails. He's just unbearably annoying and, and dislikable. Now, that was sort of the point, right? Because we needed to see that Anakin had a dark side even at a young age. <laughs> yeah, I like that guy. Oop. <laughs> Yeah, the, the thing, I mean, to say the whole is not the sum of the parts of this movie, you know, I mean, that's true. There also aren't enough parts to be summed of, to be a whole, to be great, but there are a lot of cool little touches. They're just wasted. Right, this guy's got like a, a Russian accent or something. I mean, they're just throwing accents all over the place. Alright, the Jedi trick's not working. <laughs> Alright, a little self-referential humor. I'm a Toydarian. So we find that some species are resistant to Jedi mind tricks. It's also possible that, you know, I mean... <laughs> you know, Qui-Gon here has been manipulating uh, pretty basic creatures so far. Or primitive creatures, I guess you'd say. He might not be putting on the hard sell from a Force you know, mind power um, standpoint. No, he does seem annoyed. Yeah. Yep, there's Natalie Portman's smile right there. I was glad to meet you too. That's very incorrect English. Loma no Fatafa. Having a small child try to say a fake alien language, it's just not even worth the effort. Man, I don't think they have a single kid try and like, speak Elvish or anything in, the, in Lord of the Rings. See, this is a great shot. This has a very retro look to it. The ship is very retro looking, you know? Here's the thing. The technology was so much better than the original trilogy, and this took place at an earlier time. But the notion is that you know, with this technological scenario, as with Dune, while it's advanced, actual, you know, jumps in technology, like huge leaps, don't happen often. So, from a kind of uh, measurables level of, you know, what can ships do and what do the computer systems look like, probably wouldn't have changed between the events here and the events, like, I guess, 20, 30 years later or so, when the, when the New Hope starts. Oh, this guy. But, you know, the Republic, although corrupt and complacent, was at the peak of its uh, of its power, or so it seemed. And so having some things be more advanced than in the... Uh... <laughs> I'll give it to the kid. He's able to memorize those lines. They probably just... Or, like, say anything. It does make it sound not like English. Well, that guy beats up Jar Jar with his feet. So, anyway, so as I mentioned before, you know, they mentioned numerous times in the original trilogy that Obi-Wan met Anakin while he was young, but he was already a great pilot. But, you know, for a nine-year-old Anakin to be a great pilot, uh, 
it's just impossible to believe. Now, for him to be a great pod racer, you know, I could get from a physical standpoint. You could build a small pod racer around the small body, and he's just very talented. But have him fly the ship at the end. It's so horrible. The sleek shininess of their particular spaceship used to bother me, but again, in this scenario where the Republic is just, um, where the Republic, you know, is in love with its own magnificence, you know, basking in, in the radiant glow of its technological superiority, it would make sense. It has good kinetics. Right, R- so R2-D2, is it practical? The fact that I can't tell, I give him a point for that. Yeah, they move this movie along pretty quickly. I always think that this stuff happens like halfway through the movie. Okay, here's the mom, who's okay. Weird accent, again, not clear why. Did they just like the actress? Yeah, does she have a heavy accent, trying to speak more normal English, or vice versa? Yeah, they definitely kept the practical R2. That was one smart decision they made. Oh, is this the uh, proto-C-3PO? I always forget about this. You know, I could accept that this kid was a genius with electronics. It's just the flying a starship later that kills me. Okay, so this has to be CGI, obviously. Okay, Natalie Portman trying to look at it. Doing a pretty good job. There might have been a practical head for the close-ups. Yeah, I mean, you know, they nailed CGI robots of, of all sorts. And droids and whatever. But it's a lot easier to do than than skin texture and more natural movements of of humanoid creatures. My parts are shot. Not even a very epic-looking sandstorm. The death toll is catastrophic. Yeah, they they kill people. I mean, they kill kids in these movies. I, I'll give it to them. I mean. You know, one of the most disturbing scenes of any Star Wars movie is, is in the third prequel, um, the uh, Revenge of the Sith, where Anakin actually kills like a whole bunch of little kid Jedis. Do they have any female Jedis? That's the other thing. In terms of female roles, this movie takes a huge step back. Princess Leia was the one in control and in charge, who was the smartest and the best at almost everything in the original series, and that was in the late 70s, early 80s, and here we are, the turn of the century, and you have Natalie Portman as a princess who doesn't do anything, there's no female Jedis. Okay, this guy. So I did the X-Men, the original X-Men movie from 2000 commentary a little while back, and uh, the guy who plays the evil mutant Toad with the long tongue and jumps all over the place, I thought I remembered that he was the guy who was in Darth Maul's body, if not the voice. I believe that is the case, although he's put on some weight, or lost some weight. So when, when when they ask little Anakin to really get dark at times, 
um, it works. And that's why they cast him, I think. So the eye lines don't always line up with Jar Jar, but his presence there, it does feel, you know, they're acting like there is someone there. <laughs> the tongue. Eh, that's not bad. Still not clear why Jar Jar is still around. I would have dubbed him at, at the Moss Eisley spaceport. Your laser sword. Right, he happened to reveal the lightsaber earlier. I like that, yeah. Perhaps I killed a Jedi. This is, yeah. If you ever see the movie uh, Kingdom of Heaven, he plays a much darker version of this during the Crusades with Orlando Bloom as, as his son, who he's reconnecting with and trying to train up. And He's, you know, like Qui-Gon, his character. Like Qui-Gon here, Liam Neeson's character in Kingdom of Heaven, whose name is escaping me at the moment, um, is, has a dark side, is mischievous, Seems to have a good heart deep down. Is conflicted. Um, you know, he's always trying to have emotions not get in the way, but they still do. With no nut and moolah to trade. You gotta be kidding me, man. Yeah, that's 1999. Uh, yeah, never get away with that now. It's not just the Jamaican accent, it's the making that accent even more cartoonish, or just making it cartoonish, and giving it to just a hapless, stupid, annoying character, I think. You know, if it was just a normal Jedi who had a Jamaican accent, who happened to look alien, that's fine. Yeah, her, she's like, it's like Famke Jensen, but way worse. I have no idea what her uh, accent is. She does try hard to have chemistry with the little boy who plays Anakin. Um, so I've been commenting on the look a lot. Uh, so I don't think Qui-Gon's acknowledged that he might be a Jedi or have Jedi potential. There's Anakin's good side. You know... He's already in love with with uh, Natalie Portman, I, I suppose. And the mother, you know, obviously being the moral center for Anakin, he was meant to help you. Come on. At least put I think in front of that. I think he was meant to help you, or perhaps he was meant to help you. Maybe she has Jedi powers too. I don't. Is that implied that the Force is strong within her? I don't approve. I like Pouty Natalie Portman. Here's the thing: Natalie Portman's, you know, decrease in, uh, you know, <laughs> acting ability or whatever as this series goes along, as as the prequel trilogy goes along, is almost completely because of Hayden Christensen. Because it's the only person she really interacts with after this movie. And he just brings everyone around him down. Because he's so terrible and so miscast. Uh, 
The kid does have good facial gestures. He's just annoying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the Padres, from a visual standpoint, coolest part of the movie, probably coolest part of the prequel trilogies, uh, or the prequel trilogy, I should say, and they had to, f you know, <laughs> finagle some plot movement here to make that happen and have it be important, even necessary. He has to, all he wants is the kid and, the, you know, and the parts for the champ. <laughs> he doesn't care about money. That looked fake, the Hansel app. Yeah, Liam Neeson really holds us together, you know. It, it's funny, I, I mean, Ewan McGregor is his disciple as an actor in this movie. Because, you know, as the narrative starts stumbling down the slippery slope, starting at episode two... Um, Ewan McGregor still looks quite young here. I always forget. He really, as Obi-Wan, has to carry it. Alright, and here's something about the boy. Oh yeah, they have like a flirty thing. I forgot about this. I like that. It's a nice touch. He dies, and then she dies, and you know, as I was saying, she's the moral center for Anakin, and then when you know, the thing that drives him over the top is when she's killed. And this is the whole we can't train Jedis unless they're super young. Force is unusually strong within him. Okay, so... We've seen Force powers, but we were all looking forward to just more talk about the Force. And it goes off the rails so quickly. One, because it's this kid. He just can't buy it. I'm sorry. He just doesn't feel like a young Jedi. No matter what they get him to say or try and do. But then the midichlorians. I don't even know if I... Oh, I have to talk about it, I guess. The midichlorians. <sighs> Oh, man. I will say, I, I, I tried to do a Thor Dark World <laughs> podcast just because I was desperate. I couldn't even get through it. Uh, at least there's a lot to talk about in these movies. Oh, this kid, yeah. They, I mean, <sighs> there are so many epic movies that manage to find good, you know, solid kid actors, or even better, but... It's almost like they didn't even try with this. I think that's his his friend, right? His little friend. That's his buddy. Right? Jar Jar is incompetent at, at even existing, right? Like, right there. But he can fix a ship. Anyone can fix a ship. Princess Leia can fix a ship. Uh, Jean Grey can fix a ship in the X-Men. You know, I I will say, you know, even though they they far reduce uh, Jar Jar's presence, thank God, in the later movies, he actually has some like moments of gravity. I think it's been forever since I've seen it. They try and actually, you know, not only just reduce his comedy, but make him kind of an audience member observer. 
and that's where they screwed up here. Not with the dumb accent, not with some CGI problems, not with bad writing, but he's supposed to be the audience character, but he's so weird and annoying and dumb, you know? He takes you out of it rather than bring you further in. But, you know, if you change how he looks a bit and you change his voice and accent, some of those lines could hit. Yeah, Natalie Portman never looks comfortable in any of this. It's working. You know, it's... It's... With Natalie in these movies, it's like she's trying too hard and not hard enough at the same time. I'm not saying that's what's happening, but that's what it appears like, and that's why I can understand why super nerds, you know, held a grudge against her. Again, without writing and direction, you know, superstars like Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor can make it happen. Um, The guy who plays Palpatine, you know, Shakespearean-type actors can make it happen even in these environments. I will say, for the most part, the camera work so far has been decent. I mean, nothing amazing, but, yeah, like this shot right here. Is this where he explains the midichlorians? They do a good job with tattooing. You know, they tease it with the the insert at the end of Return of the Jedi with the re-releases, which I hate. Not the new music, which I was actually okay with, but showing all the planets celebrating at the end of Return of the Jedi. Oh, here we go, the midichlorians. It just goes, you know, the whole point of Star Wars is their spaceships and and laser guns, you know, and they're in space, but it's sword fighting and magic, and it's a fantasy setting, and, and whenever they talk about, you know, technical stuff or techno babble, like in Empire Strikes Back, where the ship is constantly breaking down, it's for comedic, dramatic, or just world-building reasons. Here's the thing. George Lucas really tried to go for some weird consistency when it came to Jedi stuff, and it's the exact wrong direction. They should have been explained anything. They could have told this entire story or set of stories without the midichlorians trying to make it scientific. It's just stupid, and the thing is... I actually didn't mind it when I first saw it in the theater because I thought that was going to lead to some cooler revelations that maybe the Force was way more complicated from a structural standpoint than we thought. But that's not it at all. He just felt he had to explain it. Just like he had to put in Jabba the Hutt and, you know, in the New Hope where it didn't belong and make all those changes to the original movies. We can't even get the original cuts of the movies anymore. As I said, Lucas controls the means of production. Rise up, workers. Rise up, Star Wars fans. I actually didn't mind this character, even though his accent is annoying. But with Star Wars, you got the big bad guys with the Empire, which, you know, haven't been created yet. With the uh, you know Dark Lords of the Sith, the Dark Jedi, which also haven't been uh, revealed quite yet. And then you got the good guys with the Jedi and the Old Republic. But this is very Tatooine. You know the Dark Underbelly. Even the Federation, the Trade Federation, isn't here. 
So, the, yeah, everything with the pod racers is awesome. It's awesome, honestly. And what's great is, you know, it's a huge long scene, and Anakin doesn't have to do anything but pretend to fly. And he does a great job with it. And so you can just enjoy it without having to hear him be whiny and annoying and a poor actor. Oh, a chance cube. Okay, so he... he so he's resisted Qui-Gon's Jedi powers, but he's not going to notice this. He was joking, I think, about the Jedi thing. I don't think, uh... I don't think the, uh, the little flying dude knew he was actually a, a Jedi. He, he was just making a joke, like, why are you waving your hand around? I'm not changing my mind. You're not a Jedi. But he is. Yeah. And another thing that's not explored... Um, in this trilogy, with so many Jedi, uh, you know, with all these bad situations, are the ethics behind, not the morals, but the ethics behind how and when to use your powers and when not to. And, you know, it's so ripe for explanation and exploration, at least. And they just didn't. Yeah, needed C-3PO and, and uh, R2 to become buddies and be in here. You know, I mean, just anything to hold on to that original trilogy feel. These kids are horrible. That's the thing. As bad as Hayden Christensen is, at least he's an adult. I mean, let's put it this way. On the scale of 1 to 10 for little kid actors, um, with young Anakin here, I don't know what the rating is, but it's better than the scale from 1 to 10 of, you know, older teenager or young men actors with Hayden Christensen. You know, meaning young Anakin might only be a four or five out of a ten for a kid actor, but you know, Hayden Christensen is a two or a three at best. All right, here's the Padres. Definitely the highlight of the movie and possibly the whole series, even though you know its length compared to its plot importance, uh, it's kind of a lower ratio, I guess you would say. But it's world building, and they made whole video games out of this, and, you know, like I've been sort of hinting, there's like three, four, five things in this movie that make it watchable and rewatchable, but even more so, teasing us with the coolness to come later. Now, you know, with trilogies, that doesn't always happen. With the original trilogy, at least from an action standpoint, it does get better and better, um, you know, with its pinnacle being Return of the Jedi, the Matrix movies, um, you know, some will still say the first looks the best. I, I think Reloaded is the most interesting from an action standpoint overall. And then Revolutions is just a huge war movie that was completely unnecessary. Uh, um, Lord of the Rings for sure lived up to it. I mean, a lot of people will still say Fellowship's the best or their favorite. I totally get it. It's the closest to the book. It's the adventure one. It's everyone coming together. But they saved some stuff for Return of the Kick for sure. They helped them lock up 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. And, you know, <laughs> let's just put it this way. Whether the CGI continues to look good or bad in certain points as the prequel trilogy goes on, it was not for lack of effort by the CGI team. I mean, they really reached for the moon, and when they missed, it really had more to do with, uh, you know, sort of the design concepts that came out from the director and creator, George Lucas, and the scripts. 
<laughs> it would have been great if they just killed Anakin here, but obviously that's not going to happen. <sighs> oh, he's cheating this guy. I was speaking in Huttese. I guess Huttese, the, the Hut language, is <laughs> the lingua franca of tattooing, if you will. Bantapudu. <laughs> Yeah, if anything, there's not enough callbacks, or it's just they're, you know, the callbacks are stupid. But little stuff like Bantapudu is great. Right, the training begins here. If this kid had been better cast, um, if anything, okay, I have a lot of ideas about how it could have been better. And that's the thing. I don't just criticize the prequels. If I'm going to criticize something, big or small, I usually have something better in mind, even though I, I'm not saying I could execute it fully, at least not by myself. Here's Job of the Huts. Yeah, it looks okay, CGI version. Not as much personality. But, um, for example, let's assume they cast a better kid, and the kid nails it in the first one. I would have gone to two different Anakins in the second and third. I would have had, so if this kid's like 9 or 10, they should have like a 14-year-old Anakin in the second one, you know, being a full-on teenager. That would have been so much cooler, you know, like mutants dealing with their powers when they're teenagers, but also dealing with hormones. And then the third one, you could have gone with someone more the age of um, Hayden Christensen. <laughs> that casting could have been better. But, I, I, yeah, I mean, in fact, it, if you had saved Hayden Christensen for the third, where he was just all out dark, which he's better at than trying to be a good guy in the second, find a really, really talented young 15 or 16-year-old actor who could play a 14-year-old um, post-adolescent teenager, I, I think would have been a cool move. But, you know, they bet the farm on Hayden Christensen, and it didn't work. Uh, in fact, uh, episode two, I'll, I'll look this up. I mentioned this on my Lord of the Rings podcast with my buddy Adam Tuck. Um, 2002, The Two Towers came out, which was the second Lord of the Rings movie. 2002, episode two, Attack of the Clones came out, the second Star Wars prequel movie. The, you know, the budget of episode two was, <laughs> there's Willow, I can't believe they threw Willow in there. If you know who Willow is, then you know who I'm talking about. Uh, I, I think the Star Wars episode two budget was like $200 million and they made 650 worldwide, which is so pathetic. And on $100 million, actually less, it was like $97 million for The Return of the King, um, I'm sorry, for um, the Two Towers movie in 2002. From $100 million, they made close to a billion. And it did not have to just do with distribution, people. I'll tell you that. And Return of the King grossed, I think, like $1.2 billion. It's still in the top like five or seven movies ever. Episode 3 and 05, which was two years after Return of the King, didn't hit nearly that. Alright, so, let's see how the pod race looks this many years later. So far, so good. Easy to do green screen shots when it's just CGI, so it's not really green screen. Right, so the only practical thing in this entire thing is, uh... 
you know, is Anakin right here. Yeah, the green screen looks just so so. Okay, they're hinting that assassin there, that woman in um in white with the white skin. I can't remember what that's connected to. I do think they have Tusken Raiders start shooting at the at the Potter racers, which is great because you know we only see Tusken Raiders briefly in the very first Star Wars movie, and they're so memorable. And there's one you know one of the million characters or, or like alien species you just love growing up, even with their tiny cameo. And they do tiny cameo again. But what's great is not just that the Tusken Raiders start shooting. Here we go, boom. You know, it's that the Tusken Raiders. <laughs> they must do this all the time. So these crazy fucking pod raisers, here they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like going duck hunting. Um You know, the Tuscan Raiders <laughs> Yeah. That's great. That's another great callback. Yeah, this one's the closest to the original trilogy in terms of uh look and feel, and it's because of tattooing. And because they were really trying to reestablish the feel of the Star Wars universe. So these these crazy pod racers, you know, dying all the time. They got Tusken Raiders shooting at them. They got mean guys like the the dude who walks on his hand, who's always disabling other people's ships. And this is the the, the tune up or whatever they call this. And car races. This guy gets sucked up. Uh oh. Killing robots. <laughs> the robot lives. The engine dies. But this is all about sound. I mean, this is just one of the greatest sound designs ever. You know, on car chases and things like that, or movies like Rush, which are, you know, specifically about car racing. The sound is at least as important as the visuals, because you can cut the visuals, you can redo the CGI, go any which way, but if you don't have the right sound, that's what sells it. I'm not sure how long this thing actually is. I'll have to measure it later. It's probably 8 to 10 minutes, which is what it feels like and what it should be. You know, it's the the mid uh the mid film action scene. And you know, through this is how they're trying to sell his Jedi powers, but also his ability to fly later. <laughs> Looks great. Looks great. They have to go down. You know, the chorus is, you know, <laughs> impossibly difficult to navigate and maneuver. Yeah, listen to those engines. We see some pod racer equipment in the background um, in the Episode 7 trailer, I think. Yeah, they kill a lot of people and aliens in this movie. I'll give it, I'll give them that. They're watching it on a video screen. Yeah. <laughs> Star Wars has no consistency in terms of video, screens, audio. Who cares? But, you know, little kids, which I was not. I mean, I, I felt like a little kid and acted like one leading up to the movie. And even in my first viewing. But this was the movie that got the new generation hooked on Star Wars. They love this shit. Yeah, knowing J.J. Abrams, he'll probably throw in a pod race that's not a pod race or something in the in the new one. 
just flips it on its head, or you think it's going to be a pod race, I don't know. I'm trying to make a lot of predictions, not so much about the plot, I'm staying away from the plot, they're the Tuscan Raiders again. Uh, I've been staying away from the plot, but, uh, you know, just little touches, like I think Jabba's going to be, um, well Jabba can't be in it because he's dead, but like the huts are going to be involved, and there'll be a Jabba-like sort of practical uh, creation. They're insisting that this desert planet we see in the trailer is not tattooing. It makes no sense if that's the case. Maybe there's two? I'm not sure anyone's tried to do two desert uh, locations in the same film before. That's interesting. If you spend a lot of time in the desert, you know that they're very different looking depending on where on Earth they are. What the latitude is and the surrounding environments. <laughs> yeah, it's like the uh and the slalom, the skiers just just skiing straight through the flags. Service ramp, is it a jump ahead here? I do like the design of the bad guy and the competing pod racer. Great sound. There's very little music in here. Another smart decision. Just, you know, basically, you know, it's like with with Iron Man's suit and the Avengers and stuff, they'll occasionally use the sounds of his suit to, to supplement or take the place of, you know, the soundtrack. It's like it's like making beats. I mean, you know, the, the, you know producers and DJs who make hip-hop beats, these are the noises that are in their head when they're trying to put that stuff together. This is totally in line with, with the original Star Wars. Look, feel, spirit. Here comes the music. So I'm not as familiar with the themes um, of the prequel trilogy. I mean, I can hear any of the major themes from the from the original Star Wars trilogy and tell you, you know, oh, it's Luke and Leia, it's Han and Leia, it's the Force theme, it's the Rebel theme, you know, it's the various Imperial themes... Yep, gotta put that fire out. This looks great. It's a thing. I mean, this is... <laughs> any annoyance that you've had with Lil Anakin up till now, this kid's killing it. You know, looking scared. I'm, it's hard for anyone to look scared just sitting uh, on a non-moving thing with a green screen, pretending to be flying all over the place. Right, but, you know, as Qui-Gon mentioned earlier, it's not just his physical flying ability, although he does have great reflexes, but his intelligence, his ingenuity, and being able to see things before they happen. I mean, that's a huge advantage, you know? And and as a nine-year-old, you'd have to have those powers to make this realistic. They really sell him in the powder racer. I'm totally fine with it. Um, The announcers suck. They should have gotten some, like, famous people to do that. Yeah, this might be more than 10 minutes. Maybe it just feels like it. So, in terms of a watcher, the first time I watched this, I wasn't even noticing the flaws because I was just so amped. But, you know, even as a rewatcher here, with some perspective, this scene buys you a lot of goodwill going forward. You combine this with just Qui-Gon Obi-Wan stuff that we've already seen. And, uh... You know, you don't even notice Natalie Portman's there. That you know, it's so 
Now, if you have Natalie in frame in any movie, you're watching her. But, you know, she's still Padme, so they're de-emphasizing the fact that she's actually the queen or trying to hide it. Yeah, they don't kill the actual bad guy. Bodo. <laughs> yeah. Oh, bad. All right. Now comes the aftermath, and then they have the big... Yeah, well, wait. He can go, but his mother can't go. <laughs> Honestly, the crowds here don't even look as epic as, as Gladiator, even though you know most of the Gladiator Stadium in that movie are CGI people. Just doesn't quite work here. There's Willow again. He's look, Willow's looking great. Yeah. Java just looks totally not fully rendered. They they try to with colors and little textures, but it's just I think it's just once you've seen the practical one, as goofy as it looks, it's so tangible, you know, with Princess Leia being pushed up against this disgusting baddie and uh, ugh, the mother. It's just terrible. Maybe maybe they were like, Okay, the kid's corny, so we gotta make the mother even courtier. All right, post-pod race movie. Uh, this thing just keeps going downhill. The thing with Liam Neeson is he has this sort of wise look into the distance that he can pull out even when he's talking with normal people. You know, so it's a nice little check with so it's a nice little trick with the CGI guys. Not to have to deal with that. Yeah, from the back, the flying thing looks better. You know, when they have to actually show them flying around. So, there's been some good, there's been some bad. You know, the first 20 minutes of these two guys just kicking ass was a lot of fun. The design of the Gungans and the entire planet was interesting and cool, but so they designed the door to be really small so that it looks normal for Anakin. Everyone else has to duck. Yeah, the mother's terrible. This, yeah, you're no longer a slave. Yeah, Liam Neeson saved this. Liam Neeson saves this movie. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt. His his gravity and presence somehow holds all this shit together. The kid is so annoying. The thing is, he's not annoying in a classic way. I mean, Luke Skywalker, you know, through uh, the first movie for sure, and I would say even Empire for the most part, other than when he finally fights Vader, is just whiny and kind of unappealing. But the actor, Mark Hamill, you know, just has a weird charisma about him and, and that context that works. And, you know, I talk about, you know, bad acting versus cringeworthy acting. And there's some not-so-great acting from Mark Hamill, but it's rarely cringeworthy. 
because there's a good heart behind it. This kid has no idea what he's doing. They're trying to give him incredibly complex motivations and aren't able to get even a fraction of that through him from an emotional uh, display. That Qui-Gon wouldn't fight for the mother is interesting. Yeah, I mean, the corniness in the original Star Wars movies was always, you know, buffered by comedy or just genuineness on the part of the actors. They're setting up the mother and young Anakin as huge characters, but they only exist in the first movie or part of the first movie. He puts his hand on her shoulder. Is there a love interest there? Does that factor in? You know, and increase the anger of Anakin when he finds out his mother's been killed or whatever, I think, in the second movie. I'm actually really excited to the second movie because, you know, the first prequel just isn't that great from, uh, oh, that's a cool angle, from the, from the droid to the kid. You know, it's just a handful of cool stuff and a bunch of just, eh. The second movie is just totally off the rails, and movies like that I sometimes end up liking. I don't think there's any way that that's going to happen, but I'm excited for the possibility. Great music from John Williams. I mean, the music is selling the drama far more than the actors. Uh, yeah, they already did the... Will I ever see you again? What does your heart tell you? I think that was in the uh, the trailers, <laughs> such as they were. <sighs> I'll come back in for you. Yeah, I mean, you know. An hour and 15 in, it's just really hard to be with these people right now. I just don't relate to them. I don't connect to them. And it's small things with, and it's small things with filmmaking. I mean, there's, you know, there's, no, <laughs> here comes the big swelling music. Too much. Should have kept it understated, John Williams. Just blame George Lucas for everything. Qui-Gon doesn't even look at her. Practical set. Yeah, so the movement and the sounds of this droid is totally from Hoth and uh, Empire Strikes Back. And this little motorcycle speeder here that he's on, dropping straight down, is, uh, it looks like we're going to see a little more of that aesthetic in the new movie. Uh-oh. Here he comes. <laughs> uh, uh, the first Qui-Gon Darth Maul battle. So the, you know, the, the lightsaber battles in this movie are amazing. Totally amazing. 
We haven't even seen the best one yet. This is presaging it. There's the shiny spaceship, which I've come to like, actually. Yeah, even William's music is not inspired. He didn't know what was going on. It's a thing. Even the composers, they need to emotionally connect. That was a little easy, a first battle there. I might have strung that out a little bit. You know, I didn't initially like or, or wasn't, you know, overly impressed by Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan in these movies, but as they carried on, especially the second and into the third, you realize he's the best thing they got going. You just get on board. Oh, man. Liam Neeson, you gotta waste him on that kid. I do not know what Lucas was thinking. I don't know. I don't know. It was like he honed in on the corny parts of the original series that weren't because the rest was so brilliant. But he honed in on the corny parts. I was like, yep, I'm going to make movies about that. Alright, Natalie Portman. This isn't going to be the theme, because the only person I really care about in this entire trilogy from an actor standpoint going forward is Natalie Portman. So, this can be the thread. Are you alright? You know, I, I actually like Natalie Portman with this kid. She does everything possible to try and relate to this kid. And really, she does everything possible to relate to Hayden Christensen, I think. Yeah, here she gets to be a little regular girl. Are you an angel? <laughs> you know, un <laughs> in better care, the are you an angel thing would be a joke, and a great joke, but it was not. I made this for you. What did he make? Yeah, they're selling a romance of a little boy and a teenage woman. So hard to do. You know, I'm in on the concept behind it, but... Uh, my caring for you will remain. Where did they build up that they care for each other? That's the thing. Natalie Portman is a very, very, very smart person. Forget about her acting. She's a brilliant individual. She needs to understand the logic. And, and that is why a movie as crazy and absurd as Thor, she kills it in. Because there's an internal logic from an acting standpoint behind it. From a narrative standpoint. There's no logic here. They're saying do this, say that. I mean, it almost helps you to be a bad actor. I think Hayden Christensen is actually worse than he was in these movies. So, okay, so Palpatine here, the senator, who's the emperor, you know, in the original trilogy, he must have been not that old of a guy when they made those movies and just put a ton of makeup on him. It's an interesting call, 
taken on its own, but you apply it to the future, there's no way they could have predicted this from, you know, making the... making episodes 1, 2, and 3, which are the uh, 4th, 5th, and 6th episodes. Couldn't have seen that far. He must age gracefully. He clearly was not as old as he looked in, uh, in Return of the Jedi when we saw him. Yeah, it's great, you know, it's like, it's like Ian McKellen as Magneto, you know he's talking out of both sides of his mouth, you know even when he's appearing to be good, he's not, but the performance is compelling enough. Yeah, there's just a kind of, you know, radiance that Natalie Portman has now that she doesn't display in these movies. And I don't know if that was what they told her to do or she just couldn't summon it. But, you know, in Thor... <laughs> when she's just looking at him and hoping that he's not dead, you know, there's a... Uh... A pretty intense charisma. She just wasn't there yet. They thought they could bring it out of her, but she just isn't comfortable. And there's this guy again. Here are the political themes again. You know, the, uh, the seduction of dictatorship is always based on, you know, squabbling Democrats, squabbling senators in the republic or a democracy. Corruption, gotta get rid of corruption, gotta get rid of squabbling. Best to have a strong central leader. Here we go, the election. Yep, strongest supreme chancellor. Didn't even know exactly when this was coming, knew it was coming. So, even though it executes cool concepts that are introduced in the original trilogy, and like the you know, battle between democracy and dictatorship, the writing doesn't provide nuance and detail and, you know, complexity to the situation. They just say exactly what they would say in this situation. So that's Natalie Portman, who's not Natalie Portman, pretending to be Natalie Portman, who's not Natalie Portman. Is it, do we see Yoda here, or just Samuel L? Oh, there's Yoda. Yoda looks fine in CGI, honestly. I, I, this was one of the things I had the least problems with, was CGI Yoda. Although the mouth doesn't move quite the same. Yeah, Samuel L. Jackson from these angles with the shaved head looks totally different. What did you say? 
Samuel is great in these movies. Sci-fi, comic book, pulpy, whatever. He's so fantastic. Right, Prophecy of Balance of the Force. And this is totally stolen from Dune, where you spend the first two books thinking that Paul Atreides, or Muad'Dib, the supposed messiah, is the one that's going to bring balance to the Force in their universe. But in fact, the true <laughs> messiah is his son. He has twin kids who are born with full knowledge of the entire history and state and reality of the universe because of how they're conceived and who they're conceived from. He ends up being the Aquisa Chagarak, I believe it's called, that oppresses the universe greatly but forces it to evolve. And here they think that Anakin is the one going to bring balance to the Force. And here they think Anakin is the one who's going to bring balance to the Force. That, of course, is Luke. <laughs> so there's a prophecy that subsumes another prophecy because it has to be Anakin falsely trained as the Messiah that leads to a situation where they need to be saved by the Messiah. That's a great outfit. All-time classic. You see this artwork everywhere. You know, the... The fashion design around Natalie Portman's <laughs> various characters is great, and she nails all of them, but uh, you know, that's not her core skill. So this little hive pod of a Senate is uh, an interesting concept. Pretty smooth. Yeah, these... These angles where it's like a close-up but not a super close-up, they just get so old. They frame it the same exact way. They're slightly to the left, slightly to the right. When things are further or much closer, it's more dynamic. The mid, Those mid-shots are the hardest ones to shoot. I mean, that's what makes you know great filmmakers filmmakers. Like Ray here looking at him. There's so many more interesting things you could do, putting the camera up on his face, pulling it back, going to the you know, behind the whole uh, floating uh, delicate pod there. So it was important that uh, Amidala um, would, uh, you know, be seduced by his vision, him being from Naboo, be, be seduced by Senator Palpatine's vision and push unwittingly or somewhat unwittingly towards dictatorship. But this kind of political discussion, it, it could belong in the Star Wars universe. It really could work. But the stakes just aren't there. You know, we just, there's not been enough characters to get behind. The two Jedi, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, you know, Liam Neeson, Ewan McGregor, <laughs> they're just fun to watch, but they have no families, they have no ties. You know, they're like Buddhist monks, basically. We don't even see Amidala's family, you know? I mean, there's so many little things you could have done to cover up for other missteps. In this, right here, this this spinning shot on Natalie Portman is exactly why they got her. Because you can just shoot Natalie Portman anywhere, and it's epic. And she is in it, you know? She's sad. 
you know, she she's portraying being kind of emotionless but sad at the same time, which is really hard to do. He's spitting poison in her ear. You know, when they, uh, right here, they're arguing over the little boy. Yeah, it's important that Obi-Wan is the one to think this is a bad idea because Qui-Gon dies and then Obi-Wan's stuck trying to train him. And he never, he never trusts Obi-Wan the way he trusts Qui-Gon, um, little Anakin that is. Yeah, these views over Coruscant just look so stupid. I mean, the lighting's like annoying. You can't even see them. They're testing him already. And the thing I, I think they do now is that, you know, this kid, if you give him Jedi powers, is going to turn to the dark side anyways. But the way they sort of clinically, medically, um you know, handle him. It's all very, it's all very, you know, cold and distant and uh, unembracing. Yep, natural to miss the mom. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the Jedis, the Jedis are assholes, you know. I, I, it's hinted that the Jedi's are assholes in the original Star Wars, but they really come out with it in the prequels that they're assholes. Oh, classical Samuel. Right, I sense much fear in you. This is all going back to Luke and the original. It's just, it's the thing. You know, they don't mirror the right things. They pick the wrong things to mirror. It's too obvious. You know, it's too obviously a parallel to Luke that just happens to go wrong. Luke only goes right because he is older, actually, and is able to make you know, decisions as an adult and is not oppressed by the orthodoxy of the Jedi Order, you know, in full strength as it is here. A surprise. Yeah, she never totally trusts him, which is great. And then to corruption. Right, Bail Antilles of Alderaan. Uh, that, that ends up, I believe, being the adoptive father or grandfather of, of Leia, one of the twins that she has. So Natalie Portman's really trying to project being older here. It's a tall task. This whole thing, it's a tall task. You know, usually when you have, you know, a 17-year-old or 18-year-old young woman, it's being played by someone in their 20s, almost always. And I don't think she was much older than the age she was supposed to play. She might even be trying to play an older age, which is asking a lot of a young actress in this stage. There's no real human connection through this whole thing. I mean, you know, 
when the writing is bad, which is usually, they can't save it, but even that past scene there where the writing was pretty good, the acting didn't come through with it, it's just nothing's hitting. Nothing's hitting, you know? It, it, it's dead by the time they get to Anakin. Right, and to tell this angry young kid in front of him that he's not going to be trained. Yeah, you should just never attempt prequels, people. This is the lesson that <laughs> happened with The Hobbit, you know, many years after Lord of the Rings, which was far superior to it, even though it being The Hobbit coming much later was really, really poorly executed. It's an interesting question, the Hobbit movies versus the Star Wars movies. I, I think I would go with the Hobbit movies just because I love Tolkien so much, uh, you know, and there's visual cues or, or, or images or, you know, battles or adventures or whatever seeing on screen then. Uh, yeah. So they're using Amidala as bait for the Dark Jedi. At least they're aware of the Sith, but if, if it really is the Sith they're sending these three? I mean, come on. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> so they needed to establish that there was a rift between these two before Qui-Gon died, and that drives Obi-Wan. That's the thing. These two could carry the series. You know, they shouldn't have killed off Qui-Gon in the first one. They should have made it more about these guys. You know, yes, you've got to develop a Anakin, but have it be from their point of view and not his. Liam Neeson has had so many, you know, mentor roles in his various movies, from this to Batman to a million others, Kingdom of Heaven, he's just great at it, and he could be totally full of shit, which makes it even more hilarious. Oh god, the midi-chlorians again. Right, they know about cells. <sighs> Don't bring science into Star Wars, man, that's what we got Star Trek for, that's the whole point we keep them separate don't talk about this shit there's no way there's no way jj abrams is mentioning midichlorians in episodes of it i just can't see it i can't see it so qui-gon was specifically told by the jedi council not to train this kid and now he's telling the kid that he's basically gonna train him which i do appreciate problem is it's not clear what Qui-Gon sees in the boy, and maybe if we found out or knew more about Qui-Gon's past, how he became a Jedi, his experiences, we is it going home? You know, I mean, if all the powerful Jedi and even Obi-Wan can sense the darkness in this kid, so he, just, he just feels bad for it? If they had a better mother, 
a better character, a better actress to play the mother of Anakin, and they had more developed sort of the at least implied romantic relationship between Qui-Gon and the mother, that would be a great angle because it shows that the Jedi do have weaknesses, that emotions don't necessarily have to drive you or distract you or take you off course. Now, in this case, it has taken him off course, but Luke's emotion, although Yoda criticizes it in Empire Strikes Back, ends up being the thing that, you know, closes off the loop of his training and makes him not only a great Jedi, but one of the greatest, if not the greatest ever, and save the universe. <laughs> yeah, you catch on pretty quick. Already learning how to fly a spaceship. So ridiculous. So Amidala is, you know, on board with the dictatorship at this point, apparently. We have no army. Right, Jedi can't fight a full-on war. <sighs> so, you know, they really tried to sell that they were going to use the indigenous natives to fight their war, which is an anti-progressive concept. It doesn't fit with George Lucas's apparent ideology or even the rest of this movie. So wait, so Obi-Wan's off by himself? Ship does look good. I dig it. I mean, it's like the Blackbird and, and X-Men around the same time. Gets the job done. As I said before, sometimes if you know you can't pull off a fully realistic 3D image, you just make it a little shiny or magical or weird and, and just make it look cool. Who cares? So here, here's the getting the natives to do their dirty work for them. You know, I mean, they make Amidala a dark character, at least in the first movie, before they sort of merge the Padme and Amidala parts and make her just Natalie Portman. Yeah, Obi-Wan hasn't even taken the trials yet. As I've mentioned many times, these two could have carried the series. I understand why they felt they had to kill off Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan had to step forward, but... So, you know, in the, you know, seven, eight, nine years or whatever between this and episode two, we have older Anakin, played by the terrible Hayden Christensen, and an older and wiser Obi-Wan, who not only has gone through the trials, but is, you know, not a senior Jedi, but a well-respected and powerful one. So there you have Padme and Amidala side by side. Yeah, that's never easy to shoot. And, you know, like with... Palpatine, this might have just been incompetence, but it worked out well, which is don't even hide the fact that the two are different, that Amidala's Padme, it's all Nally Portman, you know, do enough so that they would buy it, but not so that we would buy it, you know, if you bought that, you're probably not listening to this, you know, this is a cool scene, it's reminiscent of, uh, Oh, God, where is the final mission launched? Yavon 4, Yavon 5, in the original Star Wars? And this sort of old-school temple, overgrown forest kind of look. Right, so this guy who is a cool alien, after we haven't seen any cool aliens in Star Wars or anywhere for a while, we saw him at the beginning, was a cool little piece of world-building. You know, now Natalie Portman has to sell this. So the the Natalie Portman that looks like Natalie Portman playing Padme behind the Queen, she's with everyone else there. The Queen Amidala Natalie Portman in front, she's on a green screen, right? So she's looking at herself there, and then you know, but but she's it's timing. They time it out, you know. Now when you put one of the two in the distance, it doesn't necessarily have to be her. 
Right here next to Jar Jar, you look at Amidala behind her. It does look like Natalie Portman. It's very well done from a design standpoint. But, you know, all the prettiness in this movie, it, it just <laughs> nullified and more by the poor narrative and the lack of relatability to the characters. The fact that, you know, these one-dimensional Jedi who know nothing about are the most relatable characters tells you all you need to know. Right, so this is the real, okay, I guess I missed the reveal that this is the true Queen Amidala. And she begs for their help. It's like kneeling for the hobbits of the end of Return of the King. You bow for no one. And Natalie is the best in this movie, even though she's the youngest, because she gets to interact with a lot of people. As soon as she's forced to, you know, only interact, essentially... With Hayden Christensen, and this is why I don't blame her. And I'm actually excited to get to episode two because I haven't seen it. I don't think since it was in the theaters in two, maybe once, maybe I saw it twice in the theater. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. My expectations for that movie are so low that I, maybe I will enjoy it. But here we are, and I got the natives on board. I, to fly him a little bit, you know, you know, Amidala there was basically using a reduced version of the, you know, force mind control or whatever, using her charisma instead of force powers, and they are easily manipulated, and they will take all the losses. So Tarth Maul went over the top, totally looks like a devil, stupid-ass character, no personality, no background, but you needed a big bad guy who's gonna die, and because of that stunt dude's fighting in this movie... He's actually the best Darth, and I think Star Wars fans, both those who, you know, hated these and only slightly loathed them, you know, or even liked some of them, uh, would admit that Darth Maul was the coolest Darth. I mean, not counting Darth Sidious, because he's Palpatine and a million other things. Yeah, this this accent really took you out, you know, but it is a combination of the accent, terrible writing, timing, editing. And we still got this young guy here. You know, he should have had two lines. He's had like 15. You know, could have been a cool side character, like Wedge. Also not a great actor, but there was something about um, the guy who played Wedge. And Blanking on the Moment, who was in all three of the original movies, as sort of the second best pilot or whatever. Lawson is his last name. Dennis Lawson, maybe? And this is what Battlestar nailed, you know, which is that in a sci-fi epic, you need to keep introducing new, young, attractive, but talented and charismatic and appealing characters. And they had six, you know, years between the first and the third, tons of production time, tons of money to make that happen. And they did it. It was terrible casting. Other than Ewan McGregor, it was just bad casting. Not clear why the queen of this planet, I mean, how are you so powerful? You don't even have, like, a little tiny army to fight this war. It's just a well-conceived plan. However, there's great risk. You're right, they're talking about penetrating shields. Yep, so... We have Natalie Portman talking in a semi-horrible English accent with no emotion, totally robotic. But I have to say, seeing her work since then and going back here, I mean, you know, Lucas had no clue what he was doing with her. No clue? 
She works with Kenneth Branagh or Aronofsky. She absolutely destroys it. So what does that say? A great idea. Use the same costume, the same robe, have the you know cowl over his face the same way, and most importantly, have the hologram look old school Star Wars hologram. Had to do it. Had to do it. Palpatine's the only thing that almost saves the movies along with Obi-Wan. It'll be a consistent theme. Turn not to harp too much on it. Okay. So even when I first saw this battle, this looked fake to me. But watching the intro of these troops, now they make the Gungans all look exactly the same from distance, even though the few we've seen up close look completely different. I mean, Jar Jar doesn't even look in the same species as the big boss men or whatever. But, uh, you know, there's no performance capture here. This is just animating 3D. And I have to say, the jump from here to Avatar, even though Avatar was much later and had much more money, even compared to this, or at least had as much money, uh, you know, it makes Avatar look even worse. Now, I comment that there's a sort of, you know, straight-on shininess to Guardians of the Galaxy, which is why, you know, as cool as the final battle is there in atmosphere, it feels like this. Shots from the side, shots from the back, shots from the front. Everything's a little too stylized. So the Gungans, who are easily mind-controlled, have advanced shields. Um, yeah, the, the, the old-school uh, blaster that, uh, that Amidala has is tight, and I can't believe she's fighting. I mean, none of this makes sense. You know, now they have Ani and Jar Jar. It's like... <laughs> So, you know, I say in the first uh, movie trilogy, the original trilogy, that the, the blasters never really connect, you know, the laser guns, and they still don't. I like that they preserve that aesthetic, that it's just chaotic and not hitting anything, especially because now you have the Jedi just taking shit down with the lightsaber up oh, there or something. Right, they got the the, uh, the staticky screen, like on the Battle of Hoth with the walkers. I like that. This is a classic shot right here. I mean, they've been fighting droids the whole movie. And, you know, Joss Whedon has basically had two movies where the final battle is against giant robot armies. The Chitari, who all die at once, and actual robots designed by Ultron. You know, I mean, PG-13 movies, which this was. I never even addressed that, that Star Wars PG-13, starting here and forever. But, you know... If you want creative ways to die in a family PG-13 movie, got to have robots. You can decapitate them, you can cut off their limbs, you can slice them in half. So now the queen shooting, Padme shooting, I don't know who's who. These canary spaceships were such a poor decision. And while the engines, with their sort of, you know, very tight, pointy, cylindrical engines match up with the transport ship, the shiny transport ship from before that I do like. The yellow it was a very uninspired color. It looked like canaries. You know, Battlestar was... <laughs> so, okay. So you're in the theater. You're liking some stuff. You're really not liking other stuff. You're going, okay, this has to live up. This has to live up. And you know what? For the first movie, it does a good job. It, you know, it's almost a mirror of the Battle of Endor. You've got these natives who are somehow both you know, primitive and advanced. Jar Jar given orders. They got shields. They're fighting droids. And then you got the big space battle with the exact same shots of the pilots. This was a cool concept. I mean, 
you know, it's not original that you be able to fold up droids and carry more of them and have this mechanical loadout, but visually it's pretty well executed. Again, I'm watching this on my computer, and it's actually somewhat away from me. So, like, that ball right there, I thought I remember that looking fake. Actually, it looks good. I think because of The Hobbit, and everyone's just gone so full CGI now because it's cheaper and easier, and I forgive some of the sins of this, and it's not even a conscious thing. Like, I'm watching these droids, you know. I mean, Ex Machina didn't look this good. And I, you know, Ex Machina is a way, way, way better movie. Just did a podcast, but, you know, I mean, that's what you can do with $200 million. Ouch time. Oh, God. But this is where I'm just like, it's one thing to have faceless robots, but at least in Ultron, they made an effort to make the robots look slightly different and move slightly different. So you got the laser shields, the throwing rocks, you know, this is Avatar, Ewok stuff. You know, in concept, the fact that in concept, the fact that the Gungans would be better at defense and use their limited technology towards that makes a lot of sense, right? Is this the <laughs> we have the mandatory Jar Jar accidentally kills like a thousand droids at one point, yeah, dropping balls on them? Just the lighting of this and the the blocking. All right, stay where you are. Stay in that cockpit. Uh oh, here we go. Alright, best part of the first movie. I said it was a pot riser, but this is the best part. This is what kept me and my friends coming back from multiple viewings. Literally, we wait through this whole movie for this. Right. Everyone just slowly walk away. Darth Maul looks even more like a devil. Two on one. Oh, I guess they have to have Anakin watch Qui-Gon die. Is that part of it? Yeah, the uh, the droids that sort of roll as balls and then open up, like, out of their carapaces like insects with shields, I dig. Okay, there's one, there's the other. We knew it was coming. We saw it in the trailer. So it's two-on-one, but really two-on-two. All right, okay. I'm actually pumped for this. I want to see how it looks compared to the original viewing. Killing people? That's the thing. You know, with a good 10-year-old actor, I'd even lose myself and just say, okay. But he's so hapless in terms of his acting and haphazard. And, un and you know, you just don't believe him or buy him. Right, he's shooting droids. It's just ridiculous, you know? And the thing is, because, you know... <laughs> Let's put it this way. As insane of a request as it is to ask us to buy this whole thing that he can immediately fly and pilot, put on the helmet and start shooting things, but there are much bigger problems in this movie from a narrative standpoint that in the end, after watching this a few times at least, you know, and then I home video, waiting for the second one, but that was not one of the things that was cringeworthy even on repeat viewings, as bad as it is, because of the you know aforementioned narrative issues and acting issues, writing, directing. You know, I don't think Lucas even tried to come up with the filming for this. I mean, maybe the close-ups that they would use in the trailers like that. But the actual choreography, obviously, was someone else. Um, 
it's hard to know when directors from Lucas to Whedon, who do huge action movies but are dealing with lots of stuff, so sometimes your first assistant director, your second assistant director are the ones in charge of the the heavy fight stuff because it's to because it's so time consuming and while it's difficult, the director doesn't necessarily have to be there for all of it, especially when it's the extras and the stunt doubles. So now the field is starting to look a little fake, and that's what I remember even from the trailers. We saw the trailer in '99. Yeah, it, it actually looks real at the beginning, and it gets progressively more fake, and it's not totally clear why, why that happened. You know, as I always say, it's easier to nail the long shots, whether it's CGI people or CGI ships. I mean, the X-Wings are just so fucking cool. Why are you doing the Canary ship? All right, the engine always goes first, so you can see the pilot's face. This looks great. I mean, you know, this is tense. Right, so you had the pod race, and then you had the Jedi kicking ass the whole time, which led up to this awesome battle with Darth Maul that we're going to see more of. And while this part is annoying, the battle in general does feel very Battle of Endor Return of the Jedi, which I fucking love. is best ever. I'm not going to say this is even in the top few. There just haven't been many done like this, and Lucas knows how to film space battles. That's the thing. And, and you know, one of the many problems with the second, third movie are there aren't many space battles. A lot of it's on planet. You know, for some reason, with the star background and not having to worry about real landscapes, Lucas can pull off almost J.J. Abrams-level stuff in terms of moving the fucking camera all over the place. Williams did a good job with the music here. You're staying with them. Now they're jumping out the window. Convenient. Naboo is beautiful. But yeah, I mean, Natalie Portman. It's the thing. <laughs> so, you know, I did the Thor commentary, which I love. Because I love Thor. I love Natalie and Thor. I love Chris Hemsworth and Thor. I tried to do Dark World just because I love the characters. But I couldn't get through it. So slow. The main storyline with the Dark Elves is just really boring and, and, and lame. And, uh, you know, I keep saying for the third movie, they have to have Jane Foster, who's Thor's love interest, do more. But maybe Natalie's better doing more acting-wise than not, you know, anything action-related. She never feels comfortable with action. She's great at joking about magic with Thor, but when she's interacting with it, it you know, yeah. Yep, it's, a, it's all about skill sets. You know, fucking Liam Neeson right here, although he's decided to play different versions of the same character for the last, like, 20 years, he always kills it. He's, he's done a lot of movies that were not, you know, a character like this, for sure. You know, and just, you know, as Obi-Wan is starting to get his true courage and strength and confidence here, so too is Ewan McGregor stepping up without realizing it and having to carry a moribund franchise in the second and third prequels. Okay, right, so there's the sh This is so well choreographed. That's the thing. In the last, like, you know, half hour of this movie, uh, it's it, very exciting. It's very fun. So he shuts him off, gates him off with the laser, you know, door or whatever. Force field. So Obi-Wan is sitting. Now this is a mirror. I, Sorry, Qui-Gon is sitting. This is a mirror of Obi-Wan meditating. 
in the first Star Wars movie and, and, you know, really telegraphing, if not to Luke, then to the audience, that he's better dead than alive in the battle against Vader and the Empire and, and lets himself be killed. Um, after having done those commentaries recently, yeah, this is two and a half dimensional. It's not unappealing looking, though. It's much more appealing than the Hobbit movies. This might be an interesting thing to come out of this, is that, you know, this, let's, you know, let me say it this way. The prequels do more things wrong than the Hobbit movies do. Just blatantly wrong, poor choices. But it's possible that they also do enough more things, you know, right, or at least, you know, in the right direction. I mean, The Hobbit is not rewatchable. I rewatched it once. When it, you know, I watched it in the theater because I'm a fucking, you know, shell for anything Tolkien and had to see it. I rewatched it once on TV. That's it. I'm never watching it again. Oh, Jar Jar. Yep. Yeah, I think he's already accidentally killed like 20 bad guys. This thing crashing, uh, it doesn't look great. The problem is, it's not just the lack of practical effects in this battle, which is the case, but the lack of practical characters to even, you know, attempt to sell that that this is a real environment. Oh, is this the uh, Chitari moment coming up here where they kill the mothership and the robots just fall? Costume design is okay. I mean, it's a, it's cheesy, but in a Star Wars way. This looks good. Okay, so these look like much dumber versions of the Cylon Raiders. Um, you know, I have to wonder if the Cylon Raiders were based on these ships a little bit. The way, you know, it's sort of like <laughs> they've got the two claws coming out of the side. This effect I actually like. I, I thought that was well done for the time. The the uh the hard slide to stop. Everything's overheated. This is not good. You know, if you're eight I can get getting into this character, but you know thing is little boys like me loved Luke Skywalker when we were little boys and he wasn't a little boy. Another lesson Lucas didn't learn. Right, okay. So Qui Gon was meditating to gain strength. Doesn't appear that's a great a fact that there were multiple force fields. Obi-Wan had to wait and then gets cut off. Okay, who cut it off? So, here it is. Yeah, this is who <laughs> Liam Neeson from the back. You know, whoever Liam's stuntman was, was fighting as if he were a 45 year old. It looked just like Liam Neeson. You know, he's struggling, but, but he's not struggling with the moves. Here we go. No. At least that one was in the original script, unlike the uh, Vader added, no, when Luke's getting lightning striked by the Emperor, throws the Emperor off the side. Another terrible addition. You know, I mean, you almost just have to laugh at it, you know? I mean, the effort is clearly there. Lucas did this with love. That's what makes it all the more tragic. I mean, there was a bit of a fuck you component because it was as much based around the material properties of toys and video games as it was the movie, and I've done a whole podcast, if not multiple ones, about this very issue, and if Lucas really understood the implications of the hyper-materialist, um, 
leap forward that that these movies caused. I mean, they did make billions on these movies, but not from the box office. Right, so who's Padme? Who's Amidala? Yeah. She's got blasters and the throne. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Natalie kicks ass. Yeah, again, it's the Jane Foster thing. First Thor movie, Natalie kicks ass. This movie, Natalie kicks ass. And then... She's a damsel in distress. At least with Hemsworth, he's an appealing, you know, very good actor. Chemistry. This is great. This is so, I mean, this... uh, Ewan McGregor just goes to town. And again, they shoot so much of it, you know, from the side. You have to see both of the actors. Now, Darth Maul says nothing. He was cast specifically to fight, so that makes it easier. They don't need a stuntman for him. But, you know, if if you follow it, even some of the shots from the back, you know, Darth Maul's running away, so it would make sense that it would still be Ewan McGregor. These guys like doing their own fighting, and this is a thing. And this is why everyone wants to be in the Marvel Universe, because, you know, actors want to do this physical stuff, but they know that Disney and Marvel, oh, yeah, baby, knows how to, up oh, force powers, almost up to side, <laughs> yeah, convenient little, you know, plug there, whatever he's holding on to. Uh-oh, there goes the lightsaber. But, uh, yeah, you know, Marvel gets great actors, you know, lets them do their thing from an action standpoint, but they know when to say, hey, hey, guys, just have a seat and let the professionals do it. I mean, this is all from a video game. I mean, he was clearly designing this with video games in mind, and he had a successful company for a while with, uh, with Lucas Properties called Lucas Films which included indie and definitely included Star Wars. I've gone on about the Star Wars space simulator games, which were amazing. You flew X-Wings and TIE Fighters. But, you know, I mean, Lucas was ahead of his time, and he didn't have the benefit of hindsight that we have now. Finally, I have a female pilot, even though no female Jedis. These guys are terrible. You know, I don't know what it is, but the... The, you know, the rebel pilots that are getting killed in, in the original trilogy, they just know how to deliver it. You really feel bad when those guys die. It feels desperate. This is so mechanical. They do kill a lot of people. Great explosions, as always, with Star Wars. One thing you never have to worry about. And not only there's great explosions, but they don't... They resist the temptation to fully explode things all the time. You know, that's not how it would happen. They exploded the central ball, and the, you know, uh, concussion of that explosion destroyed part of the rest of the ship, but it wouldn't have blown the whole thing up. Yep, Gungans all look the same, a field that looks totally fake. This is great, because this is the stepping on the hand trick, you know, like with Kirk on the Romulan mining drill, and they do it indeed in a million movies, but with the lightsaber, it's... uh, different. I'm glad they went practical makeup for this one. Oh, he gets the green one. I forgot that. Dude, they had blood splatter there. You don't see that in PG-13 movies. Yeah, I'm doing a whole podcast. Somewhere around like 05, 06, you know, PG-13 movies actually, for money reasons, were, were given a silent 
you know, or at least unspecified but clear set of instructions to reduce violence. Or if you're going to kill people, no blood. It's got to be bad guys. You know, and that's why you go from making two to three hundred million on these PG-13 quote-unquote family movies to one point five billion and above. He's the chosen one, right? Qui-Gon has the wrong vision. And, you know, as usual in these cases, the actors sell the motivations way better than the plot or the dialogue does. Um, you know, why he's so seduced by the boy, I don't know. I don't know. And Obi-Wan's forced to try and, you know, harness the wild beast, as I say about Yoda with Luke. Uh, the difference is they both rebel, but Luke rebels, you know, miraculously in the right direction. Even more right than Yoda could foresee. So, you know, you're seeing this movie for the first time. <laughs> I'm thinking maybe B or B plus when I first do this. Uh, obviously, it'd be significantly lower now. But, you know, as always, you're like, God damn, this is the final scene. We're going to have to wait three fucking years till the next one. And just hope that the kinks get worked out. Maxi gets worse in some ways. So here's right is the Emperor and Obi Wan, Emperor and Anakin. He must be able to, you know, read something in Anakin. He's got the Roman Legionnaires already. They're not in the full red as they will later with the Empire. <laughs> he's so pulpy, but he's perfect for this. Peace and prosperity. That's the Empire's motto. Yep, they make Obi-Wan a Jedi in this one. Yeah, I was... I forgot that. Right, so that Yoda couldn't just nix this whole idea makes no sense. But that's the rules of the Order. If you're a Jedi Knight, you're allowed to take on Padawans. So Yoda thinks he still may be the Chosen One. But it's grave danger, but what, you know, if you were the chosen one, wouldn't the grave danger be part of being the chosen one? And they don't quite sell that Obi-Wan would just flip on his negative, you know, instinct about Anakin just because of Qui-Gon. So, you know, in, in Empire, uh, you know, when Obi-Wan's talking to Yoda, you know, via, you know, his dead hologram or whatever, his spirit... You know, Yoda says, oh, he's impatient, you know, he he's reckless, and Obi-Wan's saying, I was the same things, you, you forget, and, uh, you know, Ewan McGregor's the man for the job for that role, absolutely, and you can tell he studied, you know, Alec Guinness, um, the, you know, the older, amazing, all-time great Obi-Wan Kenobi in the original Star Wars trilogy. There's a lot of classic shots here, maybe just from the trailers. This was the movie I, I really first started watching trailers for. Even Lord of the Rings, you know, which I did watch the trailers for. I specifically remember them for the Star Wars movies. Something about trailers and Star Wars. <laughs> you know, it's another smart idea. By, um, by the way, this burning there of Qui-Gon is obviously a mirror of burning Darth Vader at the end of Return of the Jedi. Okay, right. The two Siths. No more, no less. Two Sith? Two Siths? Right. The it should be obvious it was the apprentice that was destroyed. <laughs> the Chancellor has already ingratiated himself. Alright, the big festival scene. They should have just ended it on a dramatic beat. They had to do this. 
I wonder if, if John Williams is even involved in this sort of musical stuff, the, you know, more world music-y, like they did in the, uh, you know, the uh, re-release of Return of the Jedi with the whole new ending soundtrack. I'm sure he does. He just channels, um, I think, um, oh, God, young Anakin. Williams just channels the cantina music. Is that Willow again? God, this movie, it just leaves you empty. The animals look, you know, 1999, as you'd expect. Yoda looks great. His mouth movements aren't there yet. I think it'll get better as the movies go along. Right, the Gungans dancing. It's definitely Central American music. So there, you know, you've got Jamaican, Creole, you know, Latin American, you know, a little African. I mean, it's... It's almost so on the nose as to not be offensive. Here's the smiling all around. This mirror is, of course, the end of A New Hope with the medal ceremony. You know, I mean, they re- this was the new hope of episode one. Needed a standalone, you know, adventure, action, feel-good sci-fi movie that set up the future. And, you know, <laughs> the structure of it being not really one, two, three, but one and then two, three is preserved. Even though in the original Star Wars in 1977, they did not know for sure that the sequels would be made. They didn't know what was going to happen. They knew there were going to be three here, but Lucas still made the first a standalone in the way the second two aren't. I'm going to stop here. Uh, but that was maybe slightly more praiseworthy than I expected, <laughs> but I didn't get the full on love fest that I knew was never a reality. And I'm actually pumped to do episode two <laughs> Attack of the Clones. Just to rip it. I might not get through it. I might not get through it. At least with this one, I had the nostalgia of, you know, just getting ready for it and, and, and the beginning of spoiler stuff online, message boards, trailers, video clips, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, I'm not sure the second new will keep my attention, but I will try. So if you're listening to this, I think you know where I'm coming from. Um, this is for sure coming out before the new Star Wars Episode Seven. Otherwise, I just will not release it. So if you're listening to this, ah, Ian McDermott, sorry, that's the that's Emperor Palpatine. Um, if you're listening to this, then, you know, it's important to go through the historical uh, mythology and documentation and experience of Star Wars. So, I hope to see you back soon. And that was The Bizzle.